there was so much suspicion that there was domestic abuse involved. But when that video came out and we saw it, it was just so awful. We saw the blood coming down the side of the house. You never know what could have been in the crevices of things. You don't just stop loving someone because they did a bad thing. I think life is more complicated than that. Hi, and welcome, true crimers, to Break the Case. I'm your host. I'm Jen Coffendaffer. I have over 28 years of federal law enforcement investigative experience, and I'm so glad to have you here. So this is the deal. Today is going to be a little bit different than our other first two podcasts. We're going to be talking to Brian Inton. Now, Brian Inton, for those of you who don't know him, he is a reporter for News Nation. And he and I first came together and started in the true crime community with the Gabby Petito case. He just has a super special place, not only in my work life, but also just as a really dear friend and mentor. And I'm so excited to talk to him regarding breaking the cases that he has been an integral part of bringing to you. Reporters have such a special role. We rely on them to bring truth. We rely on them to bring accuracy. We rely on them to do the digging. We rely on them to really look into what's happening behind the scenes. And remember, we only usually get to see just a snippet of what they have done and the hours of interviewing and work they've put into a case. I want to invite each of you, if you would, to subscribe. It's free, doesn't cost a dime. You just look at that subscribe button and press it. And that way you'll get to follow. We put out a podcast every week on Friday. And I'm really excited to bring you the cases you care about and to hopefully break down these cases and, and talk about them with very interesting guests. So I'm really, really excited today to interview my friend, my colleague, Brian Inton. Brian, I am so excited to be here with you. You are like, where is Waldo? I never know where you are in this country. And to make time to sit down and do the podcast with me, I really appreciate it, Brian. I would always make time for you. I'm so I'm so proud of you with your new podcast. I'm it's gonna be great. I know it is. And I was really hoping to come to your house and do it in person. But unfortunately, like you said, I'm just like I'm I'm hard to pin down. I'm in Colorado right now, so it it would have been difficult. So Zoom will have to work. But I'm I'm so happy for you, Jennifer, seriously. Thanks so much. You know, I consider you really somewhat this kind of sounds hokey, I suppose, but such a mentor in this new phase of, you know, I guess my work life. Um, we met, obviously, I think a lot of people know during Gabby Petito, you know, we really lived that case through everything that happened step by step together. And, and I think that's a special bond. I guess I'll always have with you introducing me really into the true crime world. And, and I thank you. Yeah, I feel the same way. And I think for both of us, we both weren't really in I mean, I wasn't really in the true crime world before Gabby Petito. I mean, I had covered crime and stuff, but, you know, I didn't really know much about the community or so. We both kind of got into it together in a way. When I think back to Gabby Petito and all the twists and turns in that case, I wanted to kind of break down with you in that case. What was your biggest surprise? I mean, at what point... Did something happen and you were just, wow, I can't believe this took this turn? I think there were two that come to mind. Um, the first was when we had been outside the house for so long and the police had been telling us every day that Brian Laundrie was in the house and that they had eyes on Brian Laundrie. So that's really the main reason we were staying there because we didn't know if they were going to arrest him at some point or what was going to happen. And the biggest surprise, I think, was when they said to us that they didn't know where Brian Laundrie was and admitted, remember when they admitted that they thought it was the mom leaving so they didn't follow and they, they got the, the two of them confused. And 
that was just shocking because again, like that was every day I was making the call. Like, so he's in there. You guys have eyes on him. And they're like, we have eyes on him. We wouldn't say it if we didn't. And then all of a sudden he disappeared. And then the other, the other one that comes to mind, which wasn't as shocking, it was more just like, I guess, devastating was when the body camera video came out, the Moab body camera video, just because there was so much suspicion that there was domestic abuse involved. And, you know, we all kind of had this inkling of what was happening. But I think when that video came out and we saw it, it was just so awful. You know, I don't know that it was a shock or a surprise, but that was just, that's the other like moment that comes to mind where I was just really like, I guess, emotional. It was insane that they didn't have their highest priority, I always felt, should have been to keep Brian Laundry in pocket, even if they would have been noticed, right? I mean, this wasn't a covert, um, you know, surveillance like mafia that you're trying to not let them know you're onto them or some, you know, drop or something like that. This was something that it was crucial, really, for them to keep Brian Laundry in pocket. Now, as it is, he didn't end up hurting anybody else. He ended up only hurting himself. But they didn't know that at the time. Yeah. Remember how that his house was, you went down that T and dead ended, and then he was right exactly to the left. It was such an interesting, easy surveillance, really, with choke points yeah. and everything. So I agree with you from a just strictly a law enforcement standpoint. It was such a surprise. When they had the cameras in the trees and the, which we never reported at the time, but they had even put cameras up in the trees behind the house and the, in the neighbor's yard. Like they had gone to efforts in some ways, but then the fact that they just missed that was just unbelievable. That was really shocking. Yeah, it, it was big. And then moving to your other point that was so emotional, you know, sometimes once in a while I'll post on Twitter the pictures of Gabby Petito, uh, who, you know, just screaming off the page in terms of beauty and vibrance and life, and then juxtapose it with the Moab pictures. And I tell you, every time I do that post to try to really show the domestic violence and, and for women to get help and to recognize, Brian, it's just so sad. There were things that I didn't see in that video that other people saw just because of their own experiences in their past. People who have been victims of domestic violence could see themselves in Gabby in that video when she was making excuses for Brian. And I just think when that video came out, it, it was kind of a, just a weird turning point in the story. There were people coming out to the house that were domestic violence survivors. Everybody started sending flowers to the laundries. Remember that? It was... Um, mm -hmm. I feel like that video just was a big moment. Yeah, it was huge. Now, when you were out there all those days, and one of the things that people might not know, and I have to just laugh about this crazy part of it, were the bugs. Do yeah. you remember? I remember just hitting myself or wanting to hit myself and slap myself with all those mosquitoes and those noceums and those gnats. I don't know if there was anything that stuck out to you just all spending all those days out there that uh, maybe not was a surprise, but just was an annoyance or something you didn't expect, I should say. Yeah, I mean, it was hot. It, you know how it is in Florida that time of year. It was swampy. Um, there was, you know, puddles everywhere and the grass was wet and there was mosquitoes and it was muggy. And uh, we had rented our place on the neighbor's lawn um, and become friends with the neighbors. So they had dogs that we had bonded with. So that part was nice. We kind of had like a little sense of community with the neighbors. But I remember when you, and you know this, I've told you this story, but when I first met you, uh, News Nation was really new at the time and it's still new, but they had said, oh, you know, we want to get a law enforcement expert out there to be with you, you know, to do some of these stories. And so there was this man I suggested who I knew for a long time and I was just dead set on him and I thought he would be the best. And, you know, we had a, we had a relationship that goes back a while working together. Anyway, long story short, I begged him and he couldn't come. He had another commitment. And so they're like, there's this lady, Jennifer Koffendoffer, we found, like she can be over there. And I was like, but I really want the other guy because I didn't, you know, I didn't know you. And I remember you showed up in your little Jaguar convertible 
And you got it. And I was just like, who is this lady? You know, because it's hot and swampy. You're this tiny little woman. You had the big hair. You got out of the convertible. I think you might have even had like, did you have heels on? Did. I didn't really exactly know yeah, what you to had expect. You were like in this swampy air neighborhood. And I'm just like, who, who is this lady? And I remember you got in the back of the car with me and Luis and, and we're, you were eating in the back of the car. And right away I was like, oh, she's great. Like we're going to, I could just tell we were going to be fast friends. But from there, as we started really reporting this story, I remember it was just daily interaction because the world really was glued to it and glued to the developments. And Brian, very few people actually were out there in the Grand Tetons, but you were there. And I want you to kind of bring us through just how that felt, you know, the makeshift grave, what that moment was like. Yeah, so by the time I went to Grand Teton, I had already been covering this story for a while, you know, weeks and weeks, I think, at that point. <clears throat> and I was in Northport most of the time, Florida, just because I was waiting to see what developments there would be. And, you know, Brian Laundrie was still missing for a lot of that time. So I was really invested in the, in the story. I had already spoken to the parents and I just felt, you know, you know how it is. Jennifer, when you get really invested in it, probably like a case that you worked on when you were in the FBI, you just start to kind of live and breathe it. And it just takes over your whole world in that moment. So I was living it. And then when we went out to Grand Teton, Luis and I, so when we went to the park and found the spot where Gabby was murdered, uh, it's so beautiful out there. I mean, there's mountains all around. I mean, it's insane beauty. And I've, I've been all over the place. It's like next level beautiful. And it was a beautiful day when we were out there. It was clear skies. Then there's a like a river right near the spot that we actually had to walk through. And uh, I just remember obviously feeling really sad and just envisioning them out in that location. But also it kind of making sense to me in that moment why Gabby wanted to go on this adventure, why she was into van life, why she wanted to go to Grand Teton. I think when I was in Northport, I didn't really understand it. But then being out there, you know, you saw other young van life kids and I, it just all kind of came together, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it, it really does, because it just shows how this beautiful, wonderful idea. And I've described it before this way as the snow globe, right? Just this beautiful idea um, going to the Grand Tetons at all these amazing locations and this beautiful young couple so excited. I see what you mean in terms of actually really visualizing it from the grandiose place it was. I've never been to the Grand Tetons and I would love, love to go. I've heard it's incredible, just as you describe. Yeah, I think it's just because I was covering it from Northport for so long and, and when I went to Grand Teton, and we actually retraced her entire route for the most part, I just had a different appreciation for, you know, what she, what her goal was, what she was trying to do with that trip. So now here we are, you know, the story unfortunately had that horrible ending. I want to talk a little bit about Brian Laundrie's death. Obviously, we know it was ruled a suicide. And I think you may know, because we've talked about it offline, and I've talked about it a little bit online, is just the unusualness of using the offhand uh, to commit really the biggest shot of your life. Do you have any thoughts about that combined with, remember, the whole car situation? You know, leaving your son out there without a car, picking it up, bringing it back, do you have any thoughts on that or has that bothered you at all? Well, first, I think I'll say, I mean, I do think it was a suicide. I, I know a lot of people question whether there's something else going on. I mean, I think the FBI and all the law enforcement that was out there at that time, I don't know why they would be covering that up. So I, I do believe the report that it's a suicide. But yeah, I mean, it is really weird, like because I was out at the Carlton Reserve every day when they were searching and... There were just so many resources at that point um, that had been brought in and the FBI was running it and the, you had all sorts of state resources and federal resources and helicopters and drones and everything, airboats. And I never really quite understood how the parents could go out there on that walk 
that first time and so quickly find the backpack and his remains. I mean, it just, it certainly is very strange. I guess we'll never really know. I've always wondered, again, that assisted suicide. And one of the biggest reasons I think that it really bothered me was when we saw the diary notes and where he said he was going to call a couple of buddies to help him. Yeah. And And that's what's come out with the civil trial where we know that he called his parents many times from Grand Teton and said something happened. And, you know, there's a lot, I think, behind the scenes that we don't know in terms of what went on with Brian and and his parents. Not that they were involved in her death at all, but just in terms of what they knew afterwards. Yeah, and and I'm glad to see that the Petitos are really getting at least the justice of being able to have people talk about what happened. All this mystery, you know, so much shrouded, so many questions they had to have. And I'm glad they did this civil case personally. That's one one thing that I take away from covering this story. One thing that I, you know, hold dearest is just the relationship with them and, and just they're inspiring people. I mean, they're they're such nice people. The fact that the whole family gets along so well and they both remarried. And I've always just thought that was incredible because you don't meet that many couples like that, especially who've gone through a tragedy like they have. I don't know that there's a, a financial big gain that they're going to get from this lawsuit with the laundries, even if they win. I think there's a law in Florida that you can't necessarily take someone's house. So I don't think they're after money here. I think it's more, this is really their own, their last resort at trying to get some kind of justice for Gabby and to try to get the truth. I mean, even more details have even come out, you know, in the last month just because of the deposition. So I think that's what they were after, just really knowing everything. Absolutely, Brian. That's what this was all about. I mean, just some, you know, just the fact that the laundry parents had to come out and say we knew and to tell the truth after their really months of silence and not really, I think, giving the just the honor to Gabby that should be deserved uh, in terms of being truthful with what happened. So, Anyway, as this continues to go on, I'm just, you know, really happy for the Petitos. And I agree with you. One of the biggest moments for me at CrimeCon was being able to meet and talk with the Petitos and the Schmitz. Uh, Just amazing. And like you said, the co-parenting, the the love that's within the four of them, it's so unique. And just for me as a reporter to have covered this, in such an in-depth way and come out on the other side and, and be friends with them and have them think that I did an okay job, you know, that meant a lot to me because, you know, it's, you want to dig for facts and you're a reporter and, you know, it's all about the journalism, but I'm just glad I never did anything to upset them or hurt them. And, you know, I always tried to be sensitive in my reporting and, I think that just meant a lot to me coming out the other side and knowing that, you know, I never upset them more than none of my reports upset them more than, you know, with what they were already going through. I don't know if that makes sense. It does make sense, Brian. And that's why so many people love to follow your reporting, not only because it's so fact-based and they know if it comes out of your mouth, if they see it in a tweet, if it's reported by you, they can trust it. But I think the I don't know, maybe the bigger or for sure the same equality of peace is that you have an empathy and an honesty about you in your reporting. And that's why so much, even though I'm mostly going to be interviewing, you know, FBI agents and and criminal profilers and things like that, I so wanted to talk to you because you are the reporters and particularly you are the people that are bringing us some of the most important cases that people care about in true crime. And you get that inside look so much more inside. I always say, Brian, you have so much time interviewing these individuals. And even though we only get to see a snippet, that's why you know so much, almost like an agent or an officer. Yeah. I mean, like it, you know, so much as we say in the business gets left on the cutting room floor and you spend you're only on TV, you know this, you're only on TV for a couple minutes, but you spend your whole day 
trying to figure stuff out, reading through reports, calling people. There's a lot you you learn along the way that you don't even necessarily, that doesn't even make it into your report. Yeah, exactly. I do want to switch gears a little bit to the next case we began to follow right after uh, Gabby Petito, which was the Idaho 4 case. And, you know, you again were boots on the ground bringing that case uh, to, you know, the rooms, uh, the family rooms of everyone. But I want to talk to you about a couple particular things. One, to me, one of the biggest moments in that case was when you were interviewing the prosecutor. Yeah. And the whole time, I mean, that talk about breaking the case. That took it from somebody who, remember, oh, it's targeted. Yeah. You know, there's no worry in the community. I mean, that was the general message that was being sent. Tell me what it was like for you when you, you know, when he said what he said. So that whole thing was, it's interesting to think back on because now with the gag order, I mean, the fact that we were even able to interview the prosecutor would just never happen now. And we had been in Idaho for a while. And I remember <clears throat> we were trying to get the prosecutor and I wasn't expecting him to say yes. And then we got a yes. So we went over there. It's a very small office. You know, it's a small town. And I remember when he said that, because we, the messaging had been, and correct me if I'm wrong, the messaging at that point was that it was targeted, correct? That's exactly and then right. the prosecutor basically kind of said like it wasn't targeted. Like they were still looking into it and they weren't sure. I'm trying to remember that interview in particular, that they weren't sure whether the house was targeted like it was much more gray when he spoke to me than what the police were putting out. So that's what I picked up on right away because that was something we were hearing frustration from in the community. Like they weren't getting a clear message of if they should be nervous or if they shouldn't be and if it was targeted or it wasn't targeted. So I remember we did that and I remember putting a very long clip of that interview in my story and thinking, I want to really let him explain this because I knew it was a different message than what had already been putting out, been been that the police had been putting out. I don't think I've ever talked about this, but it was it was interesting. After we put that out, we got a the police reached out to me and were very upset about that story and mm. said that they were going to be putting that I, basically that my reporting was wrong and I think they said that I was irresponsible. And that they were going to be putting a correction out in a press release and they just wanted to warn me, which really upset me, Jennifer, because wow, you know I how seriously I take everything. And the fact that they were going to call me out in a press release to everybody when when what I had I done wrong, I was just reporting what the prosecutor said. And I remember I was so happy I used the full prosecutor soundbite. I didn't cut it up. I didn't use a little five second chunk. We used a really big chunk. And I was just thinking, how could they, why are they targeting me and mad at me like you think they'd be mad at the prosecutor that he's saying this information anyway i think it caused some like internal drama with law enforcement i don't think they were expecting the prosecutor to say that no i think you're exactly right because they were messaging it trying i guess maybe to keep people calm in the community but the whole point was you needed honesty at that point there yeah. is no way i remember saying that I, you know, when they said, really, you know, yes, you should be vigilant, but we're not really worried about anything. I said, geez, there's a murderer out on the street that law enforcement hasn't caught. So, yeah, there's something to be concerned about. When you did that interview and with the prosecutor said that, I think it cemented for many of us our concerns. And that was that there was a potential serial killer somebody who had targeted somebody in that house uh, for a reason that was, you know, very nefarious, not personal, you know, yeah. not personal from the standpoint of a boyfriend or a girlfriend or somebody upset, but rather something much more, much more sinister. Yeah. And I think it also just cemented at that time, like that they didn't really know much. I mean, the police, I think were trying to make the community feel safe but the prosecutor, when I got him alone in that interview, seemed to just be more open about them not really knowing whether the house was targeted or the girls were targeted or really what the situation was. So from there, 
you developed a great relationship with the Gonsalveses, um, specifically Steve Gonsalves and his wife, really the Gonsalves family. And I think for all of us that was, you know, were involved in this case and concerned, the victim's voice is so important and those victim families. And you brought that to life. Tell me what that was like, because again, so much was cut. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. I remember, I'm trying to remember how I first got in touch with them. And that's always the awful part of this job is like having to make those initial calls and you're the media and you're, you know, these people don't always want to talk and you feel like a vulture sometimes and you're going and knocking on the victim's family's doors. And I always kind of, I mean, it's the job. It really is. You have to make yourself do it. Sometimes I just have to take a deep breath and like almost leave my own body because it's not something I'm in my comfort zone doing. But I find that like with the Gonzalveses, you're surprised sometimes that there are a lot of families that want to talk, whether they want to talk about their loved one because they don't want people to forget who they are and they don't want people to just focus on the killer or if they're frustrated with the investigation, they want to speak out there. People see a value in talking to the media, you know, and a lot of times you get the door slammed and you feel terrible or there are like with the Gonzaleses, you know, they were open to talking with us from early on. It's just so sad, like what they are still going through. I remember I went to their house early on to do an interview with them. This was after the bodies were released and they had, you know, Kaylee's ashes there and they had Maddie's ashes. Like it doesn't come through in the stories or on TV what you feel when you're in these places. They had Maddie's ashes. The Gonsalveses have her ashes. I mean, it was just... Well, they wanted them to be together. That was the whole reason. And it's kind of interesting when I went out and interviewed them that day, and they wouldn't mind me telling this now, but, you know, they, they showed us the two boxes of the ashes next to each other and the parents had agreed, you know, let's have them together right now. It brought both families comfort. And so we, you know, we did our interview and then we videoed that too, you know, to show in the story, like this is just so awful. And I remember driving home and Kaylee's mom, I think it was Kaylee's mom or her sister, I can't remember. I think it was her mom saying to me, like, it, can you please not use that video of the ashes together? Because we just realized we don't want it out there. And, you know, they were just people, you know how mean people are. People were already being really awful on the internet. So of course we didn't, we didn't put that in the story, but it just shows even at that point, like they were already getting a lot of hate and that was becoming part of their world. And it was just a sad situation. Well, I remember actually a retired FBI agent pointing the finger at Steve. Yeah. And I went off on Twitter, you know, I, it's just shocking. Even to this day, I don't know how you feel, but when I look on Twitter and other YouTube social media platforms regarding this case, it's so bizarre. I feel like I'm in the twilight zone and everybody has forgotten all the investigation that's been done, all the evidence that's been procured, that there's a suspect sitting in jail that's innocent until proven guilty in a court of law, but there's strong probable cause that he committed these crimes. And yet they're recreating possible, you know, villains in this, including the two surviving victims. What's your thoughts on that, Brian? Yeah, I think people lose track of the fact that it's not a video game. It's not some novel you're reading um, and that these are real people. And with not just this case, but with a lot of the cases I've covered, especially when it's fresh, you have to remember that these family members read the comments. Like they can't sleep, especially if like a case is unsolved, they're laying up in bed at night, curiosity gets the best of them and they read everything. They see it all. And I don't think people realize that. Like when you post a really hurtful comment, I can almost guarantee that the family members see it because this has become their life and it really does hurt them. I just wish more people would realize that. Yeah, no, I agree, Brian. And, and what's really sad, I think, is that some of those people who post those hurtful comments strictly to get people to have a reaction and, and to, 
you know, I hate the word get views, but however you want to say it, make some sort of splash, no matter how negative it is. That's really the scary part. Last week, I interviewed Dr. Bricado and we talked a little. He's a criminal psychologist. For the, those of you who don't know, he's an expert in uh, mass murders and serial killers from the clinical aspect. He's amazing. But he commented about how individuals on social media are in a lot of ways like serial killers because mm. they love to go on and hurt, even though they don't physically hurt, they have joy in emotionally hurting. And I think that's the thing to know these families and these surviving victims, like you said, they're watching, they're looking, they're being told, and it's just got to be so painful to relive it and to see these horrible things people are saying. Well, it's just so easy for people to behind the keyboard. You have a fake name on Twitter or Facebook. You know, it's like people, I think just some people forget it's not just, I mean, it's not entertainment. And they, they don't realize that it's real people who are suffering. I wanted to ask you, in terms of the Kernodals, I feel like that's a family, and really the Mogans too, are two families that I'm always trying to find things that they said, you know, how they're feeling uh, to get that out. And was that something that was ever, I mean, we know that there were some interviews. We know a News Nation uh, got a big interview of Ms. Kernodal, but what were your thoughts on that, on the difference between all the different victim families in this case? What did you see behind the scenes? I think just some people are more comfortable speaking publicly. Obviously, Steve Gonzalez has felt from the beginning that he wanted, he felt his role was to stand up for his daughter and be a loud voice. And that's what his heart tells him to do. And I think other people just have a different way of coping with this and grieving. And they just, you know, some people just want to be keep to themselves. It, I think it just depends on, you know, different personality types. And I can totally see both sides. I mean, sometimes I wonder, God forbid, if something bad happened to my family. I've thought about it, like, since I'm always the one trying to get people to talk to me, like, would I talk to a reporter? I don't think you really know until you're in that situation. I mean, if you have a loved one who was murdered and there's a killer on the run, you're, you want to get the word out. You're so stressed and angry. And I can see why you would want to have your voice heard. But I also totally understand people who just aren't interested in that. Or like Ethan's mom, who I've gotten to know too, Stacy Chapin, who's a, another just incredible person. I mean, we talk about wonderful people we meet along the way through all these stories. She's Their family is really incredible. The Gonzalez family too. But, you know, Stacy, she wants to talk about her son and have his memory be remembered. But for her, she doesn't want to talk about the killer or the court case. That's just that, that's not what she wants to do. And you just have to be respectful of each family and kind of the way that they want to handle it. That's another person at CrimeCon I was so thrilled to meet and talk to. When I walked up to her, my eyes just filled with tears. And I know it's because, you know, I have Irish twins that are the same age. And just that thought just came to me. I just can't imagine. And her eyes got a little teary, and I just remember thinking, this woman is so incredible that her faith is so strong that she can say, listen, what happened is done, and we are at peace, and we're moving on with the positive, and we're not going to dwell with all this hate and anger. And I, I don't think I would be able to do that, but I'm just in awe over her reaction to everything. Yeah, she's amazing. And, you know, Ethan was a triplet, so I think she's also got her focus on, you know, mm -hmm. Ethan's brother and sister and making sure that, you know, she doesn't want to ruin their lives and they still have to, everybody has to move forward. You know, they're still in college. So she really, her and her husband are really inspiring with the way that they've dealt with this. And that's what's so interesting about this job and that, you interview people in their worst moments, but even like with the Chapins or Gonzalez's, like 
I'm so in awe of them even if this didn't happen. Like, they're just such nice, fi- cool families. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, No, absolutely. And I think one of the things that happened that was just such a godsend was for them to have a grandchild. I, yeah. I, it was so amazing that, you know, to have a little girl just, I think, maybe spark that sense of hope and not regret sort of take that place. Did you ever get a moment to talk with the Gonsalveses about that? Oh yeah. It's definitely something I think that has helped them uh, stay positive. And Olivia, their daughter who had the baby is, is a wonderful person too. She lives in California and she was pregnant when all of this was going down, which I couldn't even imagine, you know, she's dealing with her pregnancy, plus her sister was just murdered. And I remember when Olivia came to court, one of the court appearances, she brought the baby, the newborn, to court. And it's this very small courtroom in Moscow. And it was just this really strange moment because, you know, you have Brian Koberger, in this small courtroom, everybody's close together. And then you have all the victims' families and you had Olivia with the baby. And so the court proceedings going and Koberger sitting there and you could hear the baby like making those cooing baby noises during the hearing. And I just, it was just a very odd moment thinking, okay, here is the man accused of killing her sister in the same room as her and now her newborn baby. I guess I still can't really process like what all that means, but it was just very strange. Yeah. You know, it reminds me of when you were just describing the beauty of the Grand Tetons and yet what happened to Gabby Petito there. Like it doesn't, it's incongruent. And almost like in the ugly horror, you know, there's this weird little feeling of hope. Like when you heard the baby cooing, you know? Wow. What a moment. Thanks for bringing us to the courtroom because so many of us aren't ever in those courtrooms. We're not at the crime scenes. And speaking of the crime scene, I want to talk to you about 1122 King Road and the demolition. What were your thoughts? I was really, well, I I was going to say I was surprised they tore it down, but I also wasn't. I mean, they're from spending so much time in Moscow. The university has a lot of power there. It's a college town. Everything is about the college. The entire economy is supported by the college. It was really a depressing place right after the murders. When they hadn't made an arrest, a lot of the kids weren't coming back to school. They were doing online learning because they were scared to come back. And it was just a depressed place. So I think there was this sense from the very beginning, and we've actually seen in statements that they had this plan very early on, that the only way for the community to move on, they felt, was to tear down the house. I know it was upsetting to the families, and most people following the case, it doesn't seem like really agreed with it. But the people in that town, especially the people, the higher-ups at the university, were really dead set on it happening. Yeah, it was interesting to me to see the university sort of have so much power there that was yielded to them by both the prosecution and the defense. No surprise that the defense would not want that house there. Uh, But I think for somebody in the law enforcement realm, and it was interesting, I was talking to a colleague about this. We saw the blood coming down the side of the house. Imagine other possible fluids, blood, maybe a hair. You never know that could have been in the crevices of things that would have been unseen. I just can't imagine that any video could possibly take the place of of going there and understanding spatially and hearing. And I understand it's more echoey now, but it doesn't matter. You're still going to have really a sense of what, you know, Dylan Mortensen would have seen from her vantage going, you know, looking out her her door. Even if the jury just wanted to see from the road, what would the vantage point be from one side of the driveway or what did it look like in the back of the house? I guess my feeling was just why take any chances? But again, 
until you get to know that community, I mean, it's everything is about that university. Even Jennifer with the latest hearing, when they were discussing the timeline of the trial, the prosecutor was asking for summer of 2024 because school wouldn't be in session. The high school right near the courthouse wouldn't be in session and the university would be out for summer. And then when the defense asked for possibly winter of 2025, the prosecution then skipped ahead to summer 2025 again because of the schools and because, you know, we don't want to interrupt the high school nearby and the college. And I'm just not from a small town, but I mean, that just shows you, I mean, that's influencing how fast the trial even happens. You know what I mean? I do know what you mean. Like, I guess that just surprised me. I'm like, gosh, you're going from summer of 2024 and then skipping all the way to summer of 2025 just because you're so determined to do it in the summer because of the community. Yeah, no, I agree. And, you know, when I see those scales of justice and things like that way in the balance, when really we're talking about getting justice for these four individuals and how that could impact that. And I say that because as this trial keeps getting put further and further down the road, there are witnesses that are going to have more of a cloudy memory. There are witnesses that may not even be around. There's just so much that can happen. And the defense well knows this. And so it's going to be a really balancing act for Judge Judge to say, listen, we have to give the defense enough time to look at everything and to put a case together. But at the same point, we can't let this thing drag on for, you know, a half a decade. When at what point, I mean, you had four people murdered in your town and the families, most of them are saying publicly, you know, that they want this resolved. They want to be able to put this behind them and have a trial. I guess just to keep hearing them talking about, well, the high school close by, you know, the parking with the high school. It's like, I mean, can't there be a solution for that? Like, how is that, how is that coming into play here with, you had four kids murdered in your town and you're worried about, well, the high school's in session and there'll be so much traffic. Like, isn't that kind of strange? It is. It's strange. And you know, other than the Chapins who have made their peace, I just can't imagine the Kernodals and the Mogans and, and the Gonsalveses, how this must be affecting them. So I guess I, you know, just wish for peace for them also, because I think it's going to drag out, Brian. Well, and they've even talked to me, the Gonsalveses, about how, you know, they work. Christy works at a school. Steve does, you know, tech stuff. They both have bosses. You have to take vacation time. You have to plan for a trial. You have to, if it gets moved to another place, you have to rent a house. You have to make sure you can get those days off. You have to get sick time involved. You know, imagine trying to take a couple months off. Like there's some planning that goes into that. And and it's just so frustrating for the families just here. Oh, well, okay, we'll get back to you. We don't really know when it'll be. Or then when they had the date, and even though no one really thought that was going to happen, but they had to plan like it was going to happen. With their, They have a, a, normal, a life at the same time. Like, again, jobs, kids, pets, a house to take care of. You know, you can't just say, oh, we're, they have to plan for that. Yeah, you bring up a great point because just like you said, this isn't some sort of video game. This isn't some sort of, you know, make-believe movie. These are lives, and I think a lot of people forget about just what you named, the imaginations that go into attending your child's, you know, the trial of the person accused of killing your child. Just like when we say, oh, it might get moved to Boise. Okay. For me, okay, I'll fly to Boise. I'll get a hotel room in Boise. For the families, they have to go to Boise for like two months. Like, that's a big deal, you know? Expense and time away. I mean, you named it all right there. But as we move forward and as things continue to go down the track, and I've always said it's going to be years, and unfortunately it is going to be years, but I hope at least at the end justice is served. All right. Well, speaking of justice, I'd like to move on to Rex Hureman and the Lisk slash Gilgo murders. When you first heard about this, what just, what were your first thoughts 
Because this was big. The fact that this case was so mismanaged for so long and everything that went on behind the scenes with that police chief and that they had to finally put this task force together to solve it, but that it just seems like things were buried and covered up for so long, I think was just like, I couldn't, it was crazy. The other thing that I remember thinking in the beginning was it just made me mad that the cases weren't taken that seriously because, you know, I because of some of the women were maybe not, you know, the Gabby Petitos of the world. Like, I don't know what other way to put it. You know what I mean, though? That, like, because maybe you had a little bit of a shady past, your murder doesn't matter. That always makes me mad. Plus, I think, still shrouded in mystery, is all these other victims that could yeah. be Rex Hierman's victims. And the thought process... I don't think at all that these were his only four murders. I think there's going to be murders before these individuals and after these individuals. It's going to be a lot of investigation. But I would not be at all surprised to see other people linked to him. To me, that was just huge, the breadth of this thing, of how many victims could be involved. Well, and just that you have this man who is living in a normal neighborhood and working as an architect and taking the train into the city every day. And that always freaks me out that these people are among us and we don't even know it. So yeah, that's another really disturbing case. And like you said, I'm sure there's more to come with that. I mean, it's hard to believe that that's the, the, there's gotta be more, like you said, I mean, just makes sense. Yeah. And I tell you some of the things for me, just as a, an agent, watching what they took out, you know, they're not taking anything and they don't want anything that they don't believe is evidentiary. You know, you, you just don't want miscellaneous things in your evidence room that give you, that have no value. And when I saw the kind of large doll that was taken dressed in the I don't know, the clothing that that doll was dressed in. And when I saw the cages, those were, when I, those were moments for me. I don't know mm -hmm. if any of that struck you. Oh, yeah, it absolutely did. I mean, I remember seeing them taking all that stuff out of the house. And uh, there's still so many unanswered questions with that one. I mean, there's just, I think we're, there's a lot more that we're going to learn. It seems like, I mean, you would know better than me because of your, expertise, but I just get the sense there's a lot more happening behind the scenes in terms of the investigation is still very much like ongoing. I mean, it's going to be ongoing for years, I think. But what's bothersome in a way is that the new chief that really headed that task force up and put that together, as you'll recall, left very quickly. Then, of course, it comes out, well, there might have been some fiscal issues, you know. And I remember just thinking, is anybody just on the up and up that can run this task force? Because nice. I know being part of task forces, that once you cut off the head of the task force that's telling everybody the direction, what to do, you're handling this. Once that person's gone, you have to kind of start up again also, just your, you know, it's, it's a bit of a morale downer. Let's just call it that. And now this is round two of that. Not to the extreme that the obviously the first person in charge of this case was, but did that strike you at all as, wow, here we go again? Yeah, for sure. And, and remember when the first chief was arrested a couple months ago? Uh, wasn't he soliciting sex in the park? I mean... That investigation was so messed up back then. You just hope that that they can get their act together moving, you know, moving forward. Yeah, I, and I think that's why we're seeing now even more delays. I expected it to go a bit quicker, you know, and them to make some findings. Yes, they did name the fourth victim and, and that was charged, which was good. But I just hope they can get on a good track, get a good leader and continue down the road because they've done such amazing work making this case so many years later. Finally, I do want to talk to you a little bit about Gypsy Rose. Gypsy Rose has been blowing up, you know, the social media waves and the mainstream media waves. And I find that to be such a, I mean, a horrible case 
in every aspect. What's your thoughts about the fact that Gypsy Rose, released at eight years for the murder of her mother, has become such a social media giant, if you will, overnight? I mean, I watched all the shows and documentaries when they came out before she was released, so I was very familiar with the story. I mean... Gypsy Rose is a survivor. There's no question about that. I mean, I can't imagine everything she's been through. And I'm happy to see her get to have a life of her own, finally. I think some people are sort of turned off by maybe overexposure. Like, you know, she's kind of been everywhere all at once. But I don't think that's Gypsy's fault. I think, I don't know. I don't know if she's got people advising her. I don't fault Gypsy at all. But I think she's gotten some heat. I've seen just people online and stuff, you know. They're just upset with Gypsy over Gypsy. But I think people just forget, like, everything she went through. And I'm not going to judge judge her. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, absolutely. None of us were literally kidnapped, tortured, put on display as being something they weren't. I mean, she's been through a lot, certainly. She served her time. Yeah, I just wonder, like, and you're in this world now, you know what I mean? With what I do, I told you, sometimes even I feel like a vulture. With with some of these cases, you just hope that people don't get taken advantage of, you know, because there's always these big projects and books and magazines and TV shows and reality shows. And it's so it's it's also driven by money, you know, so I just hope people don't take advantage of Gypsy. I guess I've thought about that a little bit. So, Brian, right now, if you were interviewing Gypsy, what would be your number one question you would ask her? Oh, that's a good question. You know, I thought it was really interesting. There was something she said the other day about like almost missing her mom in some ways and still loving her mom. I think I would probably be interested in asking more about that. Things are just more complicated than they seem. And you know, you even see that when you interview family members, when I've interviewed family members of who have loved ones who killed people. I mean, you don't just stop loving someone because they did a bad thing, even if it's the most awful thing in the world. So I think I would be interested in hearing about that just because I think, I think that's real. I mean, I think it's easy to just say she hated her mom and, but you know what I mean? But I think it, I think life is more complicated than that. I, I think you're right. I think people would love to know the answers to a lot of those questions regarding her feelings toward her mom to this day. Oh my gosh. I got to ask you really quick. What do you think about the crumbly case? Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. Um, and they're, I mean, I don't know when this is going to come out, but right now they're deliberating while we're doing this podcast. I think it's, I mean, I covered the shooting. I was in Oxford when the shooting happened. It's going to be historic. I mean, there's never been a case like this. I think it's going to be, I don't know what to think. I don't know. I mean, they're really hateable, the parents, but is that enough for them to get convicted of a crime for the jury to vote guilty. I I think it's going to be fascinating. I don't know how it's going to turn out. What do you think? Well, I do think it's pivotal. In other words, this decision that is going to be made by this jury is going to affect so many other cases, involuntary manslaughter cases, where guns are given to children, young children, 15 years old, to use and to have access to. And, you know, we saw it with Lanza you know, in Sandy Hook and taking them to shooting ranges, even though, you know, they have troubles and those parents are apprised of that. So I just think the facts are pretty egregious, but I still think it was on the bubble if they wouldn't have gone on the lamp. To me, that shows consciousness of guilt. And for me, that is, makes my teeter totter go that, you know, they will, or she will be convicted. There's definitely a lot going on with this family, for sure. Yeah, in that case, I, I just, I think it's interesting that deliberations are still going on. I really thought it would be quicker, but there's a lot for them to go over. And and actually, if I could re-say what I think they'll decide, I think it could be a hung jury. 50% guilty, 40% hung, and 10% yeah. not guilty. I don't know what it'll be, but I knew I knew that it was going to... I think deliberations are going to go on a while. And then a couple of the questions that they had today showed that they weren't really... I felt like it showed they weren't really close. Yeah, I think it's going to be... It's, you're right. It's going to be pivotal. I mean, it's the, it's the first time anything like this has gone to trial. Yeah, it's, it's a pivotal case. All right, Brian, we've talked a lot about crime, but I am not letting you off the hook because I get to interview you, which is cool because you're always interviewing me. And I, I, know, I get know. nervous on the other side. I'm not used to being interviewed. You 
now. Well, it's funny because I'm nervous on this side. I want to ask just about you. Tell us what brought you to wanting to be a reporter. Just bring us through how the, how the journey happened. So, yeah, I mean, I always wanted to be a reporter for the most part. Ever since I was in middle school, I just loved the news. Like I would, I would, you know, I was the editor of my middle school paper and high school paper, you know, like a little news nerd kid. I would have my mom uh, chase around the live trucks, you know, the local news live trucks. If we saw one, we'd have to follow them so that I could see who the reporter was and like go try to meet them. Uh, I just always thought it was such a cool business, such a cool just way to, you know, way of life. I like adventure. I like meeting people. And then the whole just sort of crime part of it. I always covered crime and local news kind of fell into sort of being part of this true crime community. It wasn't, I try to cover all the stories like I would any regular story, not because it's a crime story or because it's one way or the other, if that makes any sense. Yeah. So what is your favorite story to cover? Uh, I, you know, I like mystery. I like mystery. If there's a mystery to something. It, I guess that's kind of where the crime and the UFOs kind of share a, a commonality. I think mystery, I'm, I'm attracted to mystery. I really just like people. I mean, I think you know that about me. I, I have a hard, this is probably one of my flaws that some of my producers have said, like, I, I just, I find the good in people, which isn't always a good thing. I mean, I, I, I can't help it. I, I really think most people have more in common than they don't. And I, I like just getting out and talking to people. I, I really, I think that's maybe what I like the most about the job. I mean, even, even with the families of the, the crime victims, I enjoy getting to know them. As weird as that might sound. I mean, I, I end up becoming their friends and liking them as people. Yeah, I, you just have such an amiable quality and it just, you know, jumps right off the screen uh, on the television that when you interview and you're a part of these stories that you do really care. It's such a great, you know, a great trait that you just naturally have. What was your big break? Well, I was in local news in Miami for a long, up until, you know, when News Nation started. Um, and I got the News Nation job. I guess that was kind of my break, you know, into the national world, even though it was the startup, which no one had heard of. I just thought, well, that sounds fun, you know, like they're doing unbiased news. People were sick of CNN and Fox and MSNBC. Let's see what that's like. I think the Gabby Petito stories were a lot of people started to know me from just from following that story. I'm trying to think big break. I've just tried to build, tried to get better and better. And, you know, hopefully that shows and just try to do a good job. I don't know. I don't know if I had one big break. It was more building blocks is what you're saying. Yeah, I think it was building blocks. Yeah. And both my parents are hard workers. My mom's a social worker, which is such a hard job. My dad's a criminal lawyer, which now I realize maybe that's why I'm not like so freaked out by a lot of these stories and stuff. Just because I grew up, you know, my dad always had crazy cases and would come home and talk about him and we have to go to the jail on Sundays or on Saturdays to visit his clients. So the, the zoo was near the jail. He dropped me and my mom off at the zoo. I'd go to the zoo. He'd go visit the criminals in jail and then he'd pick us up. So like that whole world never really, it didn't ever like feel strange to me. Yeah. That, well, I mean, you can tell you feel right at home. Like your questions are on point. I think when it comes to crime and it, so it's interesting, you know, that your father had that occupation. I think it really rubbed off on you. Anybody who hasn't seen you in person, like you are buff. You work out. Oh. You look like such a jock. Were you? You talk. Really? You talk about, but, oh yes, my god, Jennifer! So, you're gonna like that. Makes my god, day. So yes, I just wondered: were you an athlete, or were you strictly on that news academic side of things? I was a nerd. I mean, I did um, cross country and track in high school and middle school, but just because I felt like I needed to do some sport. I mean, I'm not good at sports. I wasn't popular. Like, I feel like you were probably so popular. Like, you just, I don't know. I could see you. You were, probably had so many friends. I mean, I had friends, but I wasn't like a jock or anything like that. I was, I don't know if I really fit in very well back then, you know? You know, I, I find that interesting you say that because you're so popular. You're hard-pressed to find somebody that would not like Brian Enton. And I think, again, it's because you bring so much empathy to your stories. And maybe it's because you have seen lots of different sides. Brian, I could talk to you forever, as you know, 
but I have to be respectful of your time. And you are so kind. You're on the road. You've got, I'm sure, early morning. I know you flew all day, and here it is late that we're recording. But I just want to thank you. You're truly a very good friend of mine, and I appreciate uh, yeah, I that. I feel the same way. Thank you, Jennifer. Yeah, I'm glad we, you know, we got to meet in this crazy world. So uh, thank you for having me on your podcast. I wish you nothing but the best. I'm glad I got to be one of the first guests. Yes. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for tuning in to Break the Case. And until the next time, may justice be served.